So welcome to the second in the series of podcasts brought to you by the UK Liver Transplant Collaborative. My name is Shahid Farid, a liver consultant at St. James's University Hospital. After the last podcast on the portal vein, it's probably apt that we now address something of equal challenge, if not more, and that is of the hepatic artery anastomosis in liver transplantation. And I'm very happy to have with us our most senior surgeon at St. James's, Mr. Raj Prasad, who's consultant liver transplant hepatobiliary surgeon here, who has a very vast experience in both adults and pediatric liver transplantation and indeed live donor liver transplantation. So who better to ask their approach on the hepatic artery than Mr. Prasad? So welcome, Mr. Prasad, to our studio. Thank you, Shahid. It's fantastic to contribute to the podcast and I'm looking forward to our chat. Great. So just for the audience at uh, home, the agenda really is the approach to the hepatic artery. Some of the questions that we've all had to answer while we um, address and go towards the transplant operation room that are in our head, anxieties and concerns that we have, and then what we use to deal with them. So quite quickly on into the podcast, we will then approach, or what is Mr. Prasad's approach with regards to addressing a liver transplant patient coming to the theatre with regards to the artery. So Mr. Prasad, when you're setting your mind ready for a transplant, is there anything specific that you do while a patient is being brought to theatre just to be sure of your approach to the hepatic artery? I think the approach would be different if it's a first-time transplant versus a redo transplant. You certainly want more information about the redo transplant, and, and I would have that by looking at the scans, and I would probably, even before setting to the theatre, that's something I would go through in my office or at home and mentally prepared to what you're going to face and what are the arterial inflow options for the new liver going to be. For a first-time transplant, there was many years I never looked at the scans, but as I'm getting older, probably I seek more certainty and um, and maybe because of that or, or from my experience with the living donor uh, transplants, especially the time I spent in India, I begin to look more often, in fact, almost always at the CT before I scrub. So I have an idea of uh, the arterial bifurcation, the size of the arteries and how the gastroduodenal looks. And, uh, and I'll also look at the report to see if they mention anything about the celiac axis uh, stenosis or the arcuate ligament. So uh, I, think, I think looking at the scans is the way I prepare myself for the, for the rest of the surgery. Okay. And just to talk in a bit more detail about those scans, if you did find that there was an arcuate ligament, do you have an approach to the arcuate ligament? I think uh, as long as the superior mesenteric artery and the aorta were not calcified, which uh, is not often the case, because in arcuate ligament, it's, it's not a, an intrinsic uh, narrowing from erythromatous disease, so you'd expect probably the aorta and SMA is all fine. Uh, and as long as there's a good GDA, I wouldn't worry too much about the arcuate ligament. Um, in the unusual situation of someone with uh, celiac axis stenosis and SMA stenosis, I think almost always we would probably have turned down that potential recipient for a transplant way before they reach the operating theatre. Okay. And another situation that sometimes creeps up is where the splenic artery is of large size. And is there some concern sometimes academically of steel syndrome? Do you ever consider ligating the splenic artery in your mind before going in if there is size disparity? 
I think um, the few times I ended up ligating the splenic artery are in situations like living donor liver transplantation where we were worried about the portal pressure and you want to do something to reduce the portal pressure. So that's something I've used before. And um, we have more recently in children when we had suboptimal post-transplant Dopplers and uh, with power status waveform without anastomotic narrowing on angio, we have embolized the splenic artery post-operatively, and that has almost always uh, improved the, the Doppler waveforms and the arterial inflow into the liver. So specifically ligating the splenic artery to improve hepatic artery flow intraop, I can't recollect having to do that. Okay. So clearly what I take from that discussion there is preparation is key and having a good knowledge of the anatomy, but also of your options is something that you require before you start the transplant. But let's go now into the transplant itself. And you have now opened the patient and the hilum is now exposed. Is there any aspect of the hilum that you do with regards to the artery once the, the, the bowel duct is divided and exposing the right hepatic artery that you do with regards to preparing the artery and dividing the artery? Thanks, Shay. I think that's one of the big changes in my practice over 20 years uh, I've developed. When I started as a consultant in 2000, uh, the first steps after ligating the bile duct is dividing the left artery, right artery, and, uh, and then moving to the portal vein. And over the years, my technique thought process has evolved and changed, partly due to the type of patients we are transplanting has changed. There are a lot more patients with portal vein thrombosis we are transplanting. And um, also, from my experience with the living donor liver transplantation, when you're doing this transplant without access to cadaveric vessels and grafts, then you, you have no fallback option if you wait to encounter problems like dissection of the artery. So because of all these problems, that made me change my techniques from leaving the artery and the arterial branches flowing as long as possible, even after some of the cable dissection and, and, the, and, and ligating some of the minor hepatic vein branches. Um, so I leave the artery flowing to a very later stage when I'm just about ready to start clamping the vessels take the artery down, portal vein down, and taking the liver out with clamping the hepatic veins. So I keep it going. And, and also, when we finally end up dividing the arteries, I, I do not put any tie anymore. I put a bulldog to control the artery proximally, and then uh, uh, put in a, a larger ligger clip to as peripheral an arterial branch as possible. And that is with the belief that uh, the smaller the artery you are clipping, the less likely you are going to damage the intima and cause an intimal dissection. So, so that's some of the changes I've uh, adapted over the last few years. Thank you. And certainly from my point of view, certainly keeping the artery on is something that I try to do. And obviously what I learned from that uh, little discussion there was that you really do have to prepare well. Any damage at this point can then set up problems later in the operations and getting it right first time by not only identifying the arteries well, dividing them appropriately and actually setting it up for later is really important. So once you've divided the artery, Mr. Basad, and the liver is now coming out, 
and the liver is being unwrapped and to be about to be put in. Is there any other setting up of the artery that you do? Do you, for example, prepare the artery for anastomosis quicker after the portal reperfusion, or do you just take it as you can? I think I have a fair idea where I would divide the artery for um, anastomosis. By and large, almost ready to move on to that once you perfuse the portal vein, but not necessarily dissecting everything out where I would straight away move on to the arterial anastomosis. As I said, I try to avoid too much dissection, too many divisions of branches, etc. around the artery, but some amount of dissection so that you know where you're going to divide uh, and not delay the arterial anastomosis unduly is important, especially with DCDs. That's something we I tend to move on to the artery much quicker than when it is a DBD graft. Okay, and just take a side step here. So if you have on the donor bench table uh, some uh, reconstruction of arteries, do you prefer the team to actually prepare and reconstruct the artery on the bench or on table? Um, I don't like uh, arterial reconstruction on the bench. Um, I prefer to do it uh, in situ on the table, once you perfuse one of the arteries, then move to the other artery if necessary, either do multiple anastomosis uh, to the recipient arteries, or for example, with a replaced right or accessory right, I would put onto the GDS stump of the donor. So I, I try to do that anastomosis in the, in the body. Yeah. So for those or some of those that are listening will probably think, well, actually, we normally reconstruct on the back table, having it prepared for implantation. What is it about the back table preparation that you don't like? I think um, uh, there are a few things. One is the orientation of vessels and the angulations and the, and the length of the artery you want to join. And second is at a more practical level, the number of people you're required to be doing the bench and, and helping you. And uh, like in every other unit, we have a similar problem in the number of staff that are available out of hours or, mm -hmm. and on weekends. So I moved on from that because of those practical issues around staffing and the my concerns about length, angulation. And just to go before the liver arrives on table to be joined, if there was a dissection, uh, once you've taken the ligand clip off or you've just had another look at the artery, is there any step you'd now do? If I have suspected dissection, one of the first things I would do is uh, try to put a, a bulldog or a, a vascular clamp just after the GDA bifurcates with the hope that the dissection does not go beyond the proper hepatic artery into the common hepatic artery. So if you can even preserve the common hepatic and GDA, that's first step. But in the, in the unfortunate scenario where if I feel that the dissection has gone on to the common hepatic also, I would at least try to preserve the GDA inflow from the SMA because there are times I've used the GDA as the inflow artery, uh, having completely transected it from the common hepatic. And in a worst case scenario, even if that option is not available, then I would check for the splenic artery, but would not spend too much time either trying to dissect or going to the iota and looking for it, I think I would just get on and, and reperfuse the portal vein and then start looking for the splenic artery. Okay. So you wouldn't really spend time trying to prepare them for renal aorta just as a backup by slinging it and having it ready just in case? I have to say, I, I never had to face that situation. And I think 
prevention is better than cure and that's why the extra time the the lens i go even though some would argue how often you get a dissection 5% 10% but it's still for the 5 10% of people that or patients or recipients it's a, it's a, it's an adverse uh, incident that happened so trying to reduce the risk to even 1% then you avoided putting conduits in eight or nine people out of every 100 and to me that is a worthwhile exercise and some of your thoughts on conduits due to the outcomes of conduits in terms of patency i'm skeptical like most transplant surgeons about the long term patency of conduits so that's one and second often the patients we are transplanting the obese morbidly obese it's the access difficult in access and and the retromatous aortas it's not an ideal situation to be doing um, conduits and and the vessels we get with donor artery uh, donor iliac arteries they're also not ideal nowadays so for many reasons conduit is not ideal for me i'm 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 comfortable with a small inflow artery anywhere in the right upper quadrant than a very big iliac conduit from aorta and just before we get on to the technical aspects of the anastomosis something that does crop up every now and again is that of the accessory artery that uh, for example the accessory left from the left gastric which ultimately means that there is a long paraic and celiac artery and there's always a debate about redundancy and short is better than long but actually to preserve the accessory arteries as we said where do you lie in the debate regarding preservation at all costs of the accessory arteries or do you take a more pragmatic approach where sometimes if there is back bleed from the accessory left that you may well divide it and sacrifice it or do you at all costs keep all arteries going interesting um question shade and uh, and i know there are so many different opinions on this so in principle i try to keep the length of the artery as short as possible but i'm not completely paranoid about it if in the end if there's a longer length of artery has to remain because of an accessory left coming then i'm okay with that but one of the important things i look at in this situation is before closure and i'm and i'm obsessive about this is the positioning and the lie of the arteries and and with an accessory left i put it back into the same anatomical position it is it was there between the segment 2 and 3 anteriorly and caudate posteriorly mm-hmm. i kind of stretch it out and make it lie exactly the way it, uh, it was lying before and um i resort to techniques like putting a, a, a bit of momentum under the rest of the artery just to smoothen the curve out okay so now that the uh, liver has been perfused with portal perfusion and patient is stable it comes now to the actual technical aspect of joining the artery do you have a set routine when it comes to how you do the artery such as continuous or interrupted or the type of suture the size of the suture and the type of clamps that you use that you particularly always do thanks shahid so so again my technique has evolved i started off with a good size arteries which you may say anything more than 4 5 mm with a posterior continuous and anterior interrupted and anything smaller than that uh, interrupted sutures using 7 or 80 uh from that over the years uh, my technique has evolved and and i think it's now firmly by and large a continuous suturing technique irrespective of the size of the the vessels and um i parachute the whole posterior wall 
and uh, and then the anterior wall you just uh, uh, run it across and um, one of the big difference i made um, in the last two three years is that i allow the especially now continuous is my routine technique i allow the clamps to be taken out and uh, allow the blood going through the uh, beyond the anastomosis into the donor artery and wait for a, a minute or so for whatever little expansion that needs to take place and then tie it and sometimes when you tie you do see a, a bit of a hematoma at times around the anastomosis and one of the important things one need to do is uh, quickly dissect off whatever little bit of adventitia that is still holding the hematoma hematoma there and and prevent it from uh, further spreading so i think these are the two things um, sure. i do now okay and i just wondered with my practice uh, certainly before letting the clamp off is just to have the donor gda open so when the artery is perfused i get some idea of the flow uh, from uh, back bleeding from the gda is that something that you do or not really uh, i don't really look at that i think i i, I do rely on uh, how it feels the pulse and 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 ultimately do you feel a, a bit of a thrill in addition to the pulse yeah and uh, i think anything more than uh, 3 4 mm in size um, as long as the technique is is right and the intima and intima are approximated i think i think the flow will be fine and is there anything more proximal that you apply to the donor artery to avoid back bleeding during anastomosis such as segito clips or are you against the principle of trying to put things on the artery more closer to the hilum in sake of damage no, no i do use um, clamps uh, fine metal clamps uh, segito or at times i've used even the plastic bulldog whatever that's available and comes to hand i use but when i use the metal uh, clamps the small ones i try to place it as proximally as possible where there's uh, still an amount of uh, uh, of fat tissue around the artery so i avoid putting it only on the artery yeah okay as most of our viewers or listeners will know it's essentially whatever technique uh, is done it has to be done well and many people have got their routine and certainly getting it right first time is crucial the other issue really that plagues us sometimes as as new consultants is the role of the assistant how important is the assistant during hepatic artery anastomosis i think um, every part of the operation you need to be in the best possible frame of mind and um, your assistant even if it's not specifically a particular step in what they are doing but it is such an important thing their role if from their actions if they change that frame of your mind that itself will be an adverse outcome or, or an impact on what you do so i think i think it's such a crucial thing the role of your assistant um it's not about a specific step but the whole process i think with artery because i use 70 and 80 uh one of the key things uh, for the assistant is that they a i think it's good if they also have some magnifying group because they will be able to follow the stitch but more important than following the suture sometimes i leave the suture free it's about uh, as a parachute trying to pull the the loop of sutures which are already there away from you i think that's very important 
So I think the role of assistant cannot be understated um, and you depend a lot on that. Sure. So let's take it now to a bit more detail in terms of, is there any sort of times that you've got in your head that you think is appropriate for the arterial anastomosis after cortical perfusion, or do you just take as much time as you think is needed to get it right first time? I don't, I don't uh, have any specific time. I don't, um, I don't look at anything. Um, uh, I think I think the amongst all types of grafts, I always put uh, even a small right lobe live donor graft as, as the highest quality graft. Um, even if it's low GRWR, it doesn't matter. They, they're good grafts, and whatever time you take, it doesn't have any impact on them. Then comes the the DVD grafts. I think the only grafts where I would worry. It's not about their quality, but it's about the ischemia of the ducts, etc. Is the DCD grafts, and and these are grafts. I think uh, I want to perfuse soon, not necessarily looking at the clock, and and also some very marginal grafts, which are uh, DVD but very fatty livers, which uh, uh, I'm worried about their function. I tend to try to get the artery going. But even that is now taken out of our hand with the, with the machine perfusion um, technology. So I, I worry much less about DVD grafts. Okay, which then takes me to something that I've never done, but certainly read about and heard about, is the artery first approach in DCD. Have you ever come across the artery first? Um, I never used. Uh, I don't think any of my colleagues in Leeds have ever done it. But I know one or two units in UK, uh, some of the clinicians and surgeons in those units are very keen on artery first. I am aware, uh, I think in late 90s, there was a, if I'm not wrong, a randomized trial from uh, Belgitis unit in Paris, or at least I've seen a presentation and I'm pretty sure it's published. They compared artery first versus uh, uh, portal vein first. And, and mind you, these, these are in DVD graphs, but there was no difference in their outcomes. And in fact, there were more complications in the artery first, which is not surprising. So I know people talk about it a lot, but I'm not convinced. Okay. Which then takes me to once you've completed the arterial anastomosis, you've reperfused and you're relatively satisfied and you proceed with the operation afterwards. But uh, what we find normally is that the anaesthetist tells you that the lactate is now falling and things are looking good. But in a situation where the lactate is not falling, uh, and there is now some concern in the artery. Is there anything that you now do to recheck and readdress the artery? I don't rely on lactate as a guide to the, how the artery is. I think maybe it comes from doing this for years. Uh, I rely on, on how it feels. Uh, and if it feels well, if the lactate is going up still, I think it will ultimately come down the lactate. I'm not, okay. I'm not bothered about that. Which takes me to the role of the intra-op doppler then. Do you, do you use that a lot? I think the only situations I used intra-op doppler is obviously with pediatric liver transplants with uh, split uh, grafts in them and with living donor uh, transplants, but not generally with uh, cadaveric uh, whole, whole liver transplants. Okay. And with regards to now coming to the end of the operation, this is where perhaps you've let the senior registrar or fellow do the bile duct anastomosis and things are now coming to the close. Is your sense of anxiety now still high that you've got to make sure that the RC's position is good? Is there anything that you do to make sure that you're completely happy? 
I think that's the last thing I do before I leave the table, even if I'm asking someone to close, which, by the way, it is in almost all the situations. So the thing I would check and I'm obsessive about is positioning of the artery and the light. And I, I, want, I would make sure that the, the curve is smooth if there's a, a longer length than what uh, I would have ideally liked. And if necessary, put a bit of momentum under it. And uh, long back when I started off, I used to put a roll of uh, Surgicel, but then I stopped when I realized in the product information uh, sheet that the Surgicel can swell up afterwards. So I stopped using Surgicel and and uh, put a bit of momentum. Okay. And sometimes with the artery, it just feels appropriate that the bile duct just has to go where it has to go, either in front sometimes or indeed the artery in front. Do you have any specifics on what you try to achieve with the configuration of artery bile duct or does it bother you? I think the only time I put the bile duct under the artery is when I've used the replaced uh, right of the recipient as the inflow. Then it sits better if the bile duct anastomosis is underneath the artery. It's a bit like the momentum. So that's the only time I had bile duct loop uh, going under the artery. Okay. And then finally towards the end now, which is your approach to surveillance of the artery. Is there anything we have in Leeds, our own protocol of day three ultrasound scans, but do you alter that depending on if it's multiple arteries or you had some concern as to when you do the doctors, uh, when and how many? Personally, if if uh, if left to me, I would do a Doppler on day one. Um, and if that is fine, then by and large, uh, I would leave, I will only do a Doppler again when uh, clinical situation warrants. So day one, two, three, anytime, you know, but whenever there's a clinical concern, uh, if a patient is not behaving the way you expect to behave or the graft is not behaving, then I would get an urgent Doppler. Okay. And if that is unsatisfactory or that is equivocal, uh, often we get nowadays, you know, to be to be repeated next day or a radi- radiologist or a radiographer uh, leaves that report. Uh, I don't I don't like leaving it to the next day. I think when in doubt, I need to be convinced and I'll get a CT then and there itself. So if I'm worried, I want com- complete confirmation that it's okay or not. And perhaps a topic for the next podcast, but certainly a question that does come up that does uh, create some challenges. Is it if at day three, the doctor is not right and there is hepatic artery stenosis or parvus tardis, what's your approach there? I would do a CT angio and then make a decision whether I'm going to take back that patient. Or uh, I think I think day three is very unlikely. That the the interventional radiology options are better than surgical mm-hmm. exploration. Okay, and obviously the role of interventional radiology. Are you becoming more uh, open to more intervention by the radiologist earlier in the course of the artery, or do you still think that surgery trumps IR? I think it's um, it's about uh, there, there are a few things you take into consideration. One is the timing of that intervention, the closer to the transplant, then it weighs towards uh, surgery, the type of vessels you are dealing with. So again, with larger vessels, I'm uh, probably more comfortable with interventional radiology. I think if, if there are much smaller vessels or if there are multiple anastomoses, I do worry about putting stents in much smaller vessels and multiple stents. So so my threshold to take back for surgery is lower in that situation. So I think it's the timing and the type of vessels you're dealing with. 
makes a difference. Sure. And that's already a fascinating insight into the approach to the artery. Many years of experience, but we can't really end the talk without discussing the perhaps the most feared complication that all surgeons are, uh, are mindful of, and that is of the hepatic artery thrombosis. Your approach in the hepatic artery thrombosis at day seven, hepatic artery thrombosis, you probably do the CT scan, you see some or no infarction, uh, superlist the patient. Uh, do you ever go back to theta in hepatic artery thrombosis or is that just a, a not, not a good outcome uh, situation? I think I would I would list them for a for a transplant, and depends on the CT. You, depending upon the amount of infarction you see in the liver, you make a decision whether you're going to take back and revascularize. If there is not much of an infarction, and if it's a you picked it up early, I think there is still scope for taking back to theatre and revascularizing, even if not anything buys you time until you get another graft and, and stops uh, this liver from failing too early and making the patient sick. So I think it's the, it's the timing. And, and I always approach every artery as, as if it's my first artery. And, and I always believe you're only as good as your last uh, transplant. So the attention you pay is still the same. Okay. And then perhaps just to change tack is that of the other challenge that as consultant surgeons we have, and that is our duty to train. The hepatic artery is always the uh, the end um, opportunity for training where you really are absolutely sure of your training and your capabilities. But what's your approach to training the junior or the research, or research fellow, the, the senior fellow, the hepatic artery? Uh, I suppose every surgeon has their own thresholds to allow trainees to do the artery. I am mindful of my role as a trainer and that it's very important to train the next generation of uh, surgeons. But also the conflict that lies within me about the commitment you have towards the patient and, and getting the best possible result. I think I think it's about finding a balance between these two, but not in any way means that um, the trainee, if they do the operation, it, it, there is a, a worse outcome for the for the for the patient. I don't in any way mean that, but it it is it is a balance between how you see this as an ultimate exercise versus a training exercise. And um, and in that way I've come to the conclusion in my mind that artery is the last thing I would give to a trainee. You know, the 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 first and foremost, the trainee gets to do the the portal, the IVC and the portal vein, and uh, and probably the bile duct uh, slightly later, and then uh, the explant uh, and artery are probably the that's mm -hmm. the the sequence of uh, my training, and and I think one of the problems I see with the current uh, training system is that when I trained, I was also trained in kidney transplant, I was trained in vascular access, and they are very good, important uh, surgical techniques you learn as a trainee, and, and those skills are transferable mm -hmm. to the hepatic artery, uh, especially, uh, you know, for me, vascular access surgery has been so crucial, and I almost transferred every bit of skill I learned there onto my arterial technique. So I would encourage if there are options available for, for uh, vascular access and, and renal transplant uh, training, I would encourage trainees to pursue that also. 
Okay. And there's probably no doubt that your first exposure to vascular access or to renal transplantation is also perhaps your first exposure to the instruments that we use in the hepatic artery anastomosis with the castrophenol and the uh, other smaller, more accurate and more finer instruments to actually have uh, a feel for those instruments before coming to the table to do the hepatic artery. So with that in mind, um, I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Raj Prasad for giving that insight. I think our viewers and listeners will take something from that. And while other people will have no doubt other ways of approaching the artery, the concept is, is the same. Get it right first time, prepare the artery well, prepare yourself well, and always be mindful of potential complications that can occur. So with that, I will end this podcast and would welcome any questions that come in through our website of the UK Liver Transplant Research Collaborative and look forward to the next of podcasts to come soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you, Jay. 